you might expect something like crime categories to appear in the index of the Encyclopedia of American Crime. Listed underneath that heading are a variety of crimes you'd also expect to see. Everything from arson and bank robberies to kidnapping, murder, and rape. But there were a couple of crimes I wasn't expecting, such as spiritualism, which I discussed in the last episode. But the other shocker was vampires. Of course, that was an entry I had to check out. Turns out, it wasn't referring to the stereotypical bloodsuckers pop culture has conditioned us to expect. It was about vice extortionists. If you're wondering what the heck those are, stick around. We'll be talking about those kind of vampires, which are bloodsuckers in their own right, as well as people who have committed murder under the delusion of being the more traditional vampires, blood drinking and all, in this episode of Haunting American True Crimes. Welcome back. My name is Courtney Maroc, and it's my pleasure to once again be your host and guide for this episode of the Haunting American True Crime series here on the Haunt Johns podcast. Whether you're a repeat sailor or this is your first jaunt sailing the airwaves with me, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe so you know when the next episodes drop. If you're enjoying this on YouTube, be sure to leave a thumbs up, or rate it if your podcast provider allows. Comments, reviews, and shares are super helpful and always appreciated. Okay, so I've made you wait long enough to learn what a vice extortionist is, if you didn't already know, and what they have to do with vampires. According to the Encyclopedia of American Crime, Vampires, aka vice extortionists, were prevalent in 19th century America. They'd hang outside of brothels and follow upper-class gentlemen back to their homes. Then they'd threaten to stand outside chanting, He's just come back from a whorehouse! He's just come back from a whorehouse! Unless they got paid off. Well, this wasn't good for anyone, especially not the bordello owners. They're actually the ones who would wind up running the vampires off. Like the case in 1870 in Chicago, where a gang of successful vampires finally found their match in a brothel owner named Dan Webster. Unbeknownst to the vampires, the building Webster operated out of had a secret owner. Michael C. Hickey, the superintendent of police. It's widely believed he was also Webster's silent partner. Well, Superintendent Hickey arranged to have policemen waiting to club any vampires who materialized within a couple of block radius of Webster's banyo. 
After several healthy beatings, they soon realized their scam was shot and deserted the area entirely. But what about real-life American vampires? We're all familiar with the European ones. Like the Romanian Prince Vlad III, also known as Vlad the Impaler, and how he inspired Bram Stoker's classic vampire Dracula. And then there's the Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory, or the Blood Countess as she's also known, who in the late 1500 and early 1600s killed women and bathed in their blood, believing it helped her stay young and healthy. Blood is food for fictional vampires, but blood as life or for its healing properties is a popular motive for those who believe themselves to be vampires in real life, too. Take the case of Richard Trenton Chase, who would become known as the Vampire of Sacramento following a murder spree in the late 1970s. He believed blood could cleanse him of poisons in his body. Or maybe he thought it would protect him from being beamed up into a flying saucer. Or perhaps help him get abducted. Not sure which he hoped to either have happen or to avoid, but in one of the first stories to break about the case, the Sacramento Bee reported that Chase was into UFOs and their conspiracy theories. They reported that a man who had been Chase's friend, but who wished to remain anonymous because he was an insurance salesman who feared knowing Chase would hurt his business, said that the last time he spoke with Chase was when Chase had called Mr. Anonymous out of the blue and asked him about his thoughts on flying saucers and if he'd ever seen the people in them. Mr. Anonymous said that the Rick he knew was a fine boy and was disturbed to learn he'd been arrested for the gruesome murders of 22-year-old Teresa Terry Wallen, a housewife who was three months pregnant, 36-year-old Evelyn Maroth, her six-year-old son Jason, and her 22-year-old nephew David Michael Ferreira, along with their neighbor and family friend 50-year-old Daniel Meredith. Chase murdered Terry on January 23, 1978, and Evelyn, Jason, Daniel, and presumably David four days later in the same area on January 27th. I say presumably in the toddler David's case because at first his body was not found. Some reports said that was because Chase ate him, but Sacramento Bee staff writers Nancy Skelton and Wayne Wilson reported the coroner's office denied any evidence of that. It was the finding of animal parts in Chase's apartment that prompted such a speculation. Which turned out to be just that, speculation, because the toddler's body was unfortunately found mummified in a small box behind a church on March 23, 1978. But it was those five murders so close together that led to the manhunt which resulted in Chase's arrest soon after on Saturday, January 28, 1978. However, on February 22, 1978, the Sacramento Bee reported a grand jury indictment charged Chase with a sixth murder. He was accused of shooting 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin on December 29, 1977, 
just a few weeks before his January killing spree. Ambrose had just arrived home from a trip to the supermarket and was unloading groceries when Chase drove up and shot him. Which was a tragedy in its own right, but at least Ambrose didn't suffer the gruesome indignation that the others had. In the cases of Terry and Evelyn, Chase had slashed them with a knife after shooting them and drank their blood. He had also raped and simultaneously stabbed Terry's corpse before disemboweling her and stuffing dog feces into her mouth. He'd sodomized Evelyn. What happened that such a fine boy could appear fine for 27 years before snapping in such a spectacular fashion? Well, as Evil Lives Here, one of my favorite investigation discovery shows always puts it, there were signs. Like in 1976, he was a patient for six months at the Beverly Manor Sanitarium. He'd been sent there for blood poisoning after trying to inject himself with rabbit blood. While at the sanitarium, a couple of orderlies nicknamed him Dracula after they discovered he bit the heads off of birds and drank their blood. And in 1977, he was arrested on an Indian reservation in Nevada when he'd been found naked and covered in cow's blood in a field. A jury ultimately found Richard Trenton Chase guilty. He was convicted in 1979 and sentenced to death in the gas chamber. However, he ended up stockpiling pills he'd been prescribed for his mental illness, antidepressants and tranquilizers, which he overdosed on on December 29, 1980. We often think that vampires either mesmerize their victims into submission with a mere look of their eyes, or they have supernatural strength and overpower their prey before plunging their teeth into their necks and killing them. But Chase used a gun to kill. So did 24-year-old self-proclaimed vampire James P. Riva. He got fancy, though, using gold-tipped bullets to kill his 78-year-old grandmother, Carmen Lopez, on April 10, 1980. Riva told his mom that vampires he'd met during a trip to Florida in 1978 told him if the bullets weren't gold, they wouldn't find their mark, so he painted some to carry out the task. He shot his grandma a few times, then drank her blood from the bullet hole wounds, allegedly in pursuit of a better life in which he believed his vampire ways would bestow money, fast cars, and beautiful women on him. Riva tried to cop the insanity defense, but the fact that he set his grandma's house on fire after the murder suggested he was trying to cover it up. Prosecutors argued this was proof he knew what he was doing and that it was wrong. Although, if his defense attorney had been savvier, he would have argued that a fire is no friend to vampires, what one in their right mind would purposely set one? On October 30, 1981, a jury found Riva guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison at the Walpole State Prison in Massachusetts. He was eligible for parole in 2009, but it was denied. Then there's the case of Roderick Farrell's vampire clan out of Kentucky. 
On Monday, November 25, 1996, 17-year-old Jennifer Wendorf came home from her part-time job to find the bodies of her parents, Richard and Naoma Ruth, in their home. Her 15-year-old younger sister, Heather, was nowhere to be found. Heather and Jennifer's grandfather, James Wendorf, had been a lawyer for the Billy Graham crusade. Initially, authorities feared Heather had been abducted. Instead, they quickly realized she'd helped her 16-year-old boyfriend, Roderick Rod Farrell, kill her parents. Heather and Rod had both attended Eustis High School when Roderick had lived in Florida. They'd dated for two years and had kept in touch after he'd dropped out and moved back to Kentucky. Apparently wanting to initiate Heather into his coven so they could be together forever, he recruited two of his fellow vampire clan members, Howard Anderson and Charity Kesey, both 16 at the time, to travel to Florida to kill Heather's parents with him. One other teen, 19-year-old Dana Cooper, was also arrested and charged with being an accessory after the fact once they all were tracked to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. All five were then extradited back to Florida. So what happened to make the teens think they were vampires? Rod took the role-playing game Vampire Masquerade too far and ended up truly believing himself an immortal 500-year-old vampire named Visago. However, he quickly ended up growing out of his delusional phase after his arrest. On February 6, 1998, he pled guilty to the double homicide of the Wendorfs. His plan was to, as a February 6, 1998 article in the Palm Beach Post put it, avoid a sensational trial detailing his gang's blood drinking and other strange practices in the hopes he could convince a jury to sentence him to life in prison rather than death in an electric chair. At first, it didn't work. He was sentenced to death row in late February 1998. However, on November 9, 2000, his sentence was commuted to life in prison because the minimum age to get the chair was 17. Even though in 2000 Rod was now 20, he had been 16 at the time of his crime. And whatever happened to his girlfriend, Heather Wendorf? Charges against her were dropped. Howard Anderson also received life in prison, but in 2013, his sentence was reduced to 40 years. He'll be eligible for release in 2031. Dana Cooper was sentenced to 17 and a half years in prison, and Charity Kesey received 10 and a half years. They were both released once they served their sentences. We'll end with one last case that's also out of Florida this time from 2011. Luckily, it didn't result in anyone's murder, but it did lead to some hilarious headlines, at least in my eyes, but I kind of have a thing for crazy haunted headlines. My vote for the best one came from Sci-Fi Wire. Vampire arrested in Florida for trying to eat old guy at Hooters. But it's almost a tie with Escapist magazines, Face-chomping vampire attacks geriatric at Hooters. 
Apparently, 22-year-old Josephine Smith had a bad case of the midnight munchies on September 9, 2011. When she saw a homeless man sleeping outside an abandoned Hooters restaurant, she decided he looked like a good snack. She was very honest about it. According to the police report, after she sat on top of the man, she told him, I am a vampire. I am going to eat you. The next thing 69-year-old Milton Ellis knew, she was biting his neck, lips, and arms. Talk about a rude awakening. He managed to escape and reported her to the police, who arrested her for felony aggravated battery on an elderly person. If you've enjoyed this vampire episode, remember to like and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. We have two more left in this Haunting American True Crime series. Next week, we're exploring a real doozy of a how-done-it that involves a body found inside of a locked house. But how did the killer get out then? Nobody else had a key. Was it some sort of a homicidal specter? Oh, it's so much creepier than that. I promise you will not want to miss this story. With that tantalizing tidbit, I'll bid you adieu. Well, after I thank you once more for sailing the airwaves with me. Until our paths cross again, ciao for now. Mm-hmm.